Went over road course. Is this the checker or the white flag? I've lost track. And coming up on the white flag, Betty. Here they are. Is there. 11. Oh, and Davey Allison is spun. Ricky Rudd now has the lead. All kinds of contact here in the last few laps. And the white flag flies for Ricky Rudd. Ricky Rudd brings the car once again down through the S's. This will be for the final time this afternoon. Now entering turn number 11. And Ricky Rudd is apparently going to receive the checkered flag and the win of the Banquet Frozen Foods 300. Here he comes, waving to the pit crew as he passes by. The black flag is shown to Ricky Rudd. Rudd is shown the black flag. Davey Allison is shown the checkered flag. They did not give the win to Ricky Rudd. No, they gave the black flag to Ricky Rudd as he came down and passed under the start-finish line. They waved the checkered flag to Davey Allison, and he apparently is going to win this race. All right. Well, some of you are probably like, what was that? Um, it's NASCAR season, if you are unfamiliar. Um, and admittedly, I'm not a big NASCAR fan. However, I do know enough to... Um, from just talking with different people, and I've also seen the documentary Talladega Nights to realize that there was, that there should be some kind of illustration that could point to our passages today. So I reached out to one of my youth leaders and, and buddy Josh, who was a big racing guy, and he, he told me about this um, illustration um, where Davy Allison was in first place and Ricky Rudd was in second place. And they were coming up to the last lap and coming around the corner and Ricky rubbed Davey, which I know enough from racing that they say all the time, rubbing is racing, and that's a separate point. There's people all upset about that. Um, but anyway, so Ricky spins Davey out, and which allows him to go into first place. He gets the, the, the white flag, which indicates there's one lap left, and so he thinks he's winning. He's waving to the, the, the pit crew, and he gets to the finish line, and they show him the black flag, which indicates he has been disqualified. Um, and so that's kind of an illustration to, to kind of get to our thing of let no one disqualify you, um, which we'll talk about, which is Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Uh, so now that we got the gearheads in here all kind of revved up, I'm going to pray uh, to kind of calm them down. Uh, so if you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, I just thank you for today. And Lord, as we dive into Colossians 2, 18 and 19, uh, Lord, I pray that you just help us to kind of unearth some some truths that are there and to clear up maybe some misconceptions that might come from the passage and the reading of it. And so, Lord, I pray just your spirit be moving and uh, anoint the words that I have um, that we can have some clarity of mind uh, of going forward with this passage. And so, uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, our passage is a continuation of what Chad did such an excellent job last Sunday um, of explaining. And so if you missed that sermon, I highly recommend that you go and watch it online at our website uh, or on our app. You can watch past sermons there to kind of get caught up. And so Chad was explaining how the Jewish, um, there was some false teaching that was entering into the church in, in Colossae. And so uh, he was talking about legalism and how they were trying to add things onto our uh, relationship with Christ and how that Christ's death wasn't enough, that you had to jump through these hoops and how that can really steal our joy. 
Uh, and so he was talking about legalism, and today we're entering into the fun world of Jewish mysticism, and I'll kind of explain how we, why we get there in a second. Um, there was a group of Jewish believers in Qumran uh, called the Essenes, and not to be confused with the Essens, um, Pastor Neil is going to be preaching. Neil Essen will be preaching next week. You should listen to him. Um, he is not an es- a scene. He's an Essen, so very different. Um, if you're wondering, if you're thinking that sounds familiar, Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, um, which had some very uh, interesting and important things, a part of it, uh, of learning about this group of Jewish believers. Um, but also it found some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of Scripture. And uh, scholars were shocked to find out that the, 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 basically the accuracy of the transcriptions, um, because the book of Isaiah, there was, they found a manuscript that was 1,200 years earlier than the earliest one that they had. And um, of all the manuscripts, they found that 95% of the earlier manuscripts to the ones that used to be the earliest were 95% exactly word for word the same word that was in those manuscripts, which is incredible. That is not even, there's not an ancient text that's even close to that. And then it continues that the majority of those differences were spelling alterations, uh, just they spelt it a little bit differently. And then as one scholar put it, obvious slips of the pen. And so I share that with you is because we believe that this isn't just an ordinary book, right? That this is the inspired God, inspired word of God. And that when we go to this, that we can trust that it's accurate and that God has actually had a hand in preserving what was written down in the originals to what we have today. And so as we dig into uh, our passage of uh, Colossians 2, 18 and 19, uh, we can go knowing that that's uh, very accurate to what God intended. In fact, that there wasn't any kind of change as far as Um, what God wants for us today. So this is what the passage says. Uh, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So we don't get very far uh, into this passage Five words, in fact, before I think we kind of got to pump the brakes or take a pit stop or the caution flag comes out. Whatever racing analogy you want to use um, to really kind of pull up. Because to ask the question, what does Paul mean by let no one disqualify you? Um, that's kind of, you know, what, what is he talking about? And uh, that is a phrase that is not found anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, that is a trend that you're going to find with this. Uh, group of passages here, but it is, the word is kata brabuo, is the Greek word, and it's made up of two, or it's two words, a new phrase, and scholars agree that it means to umpire or make a judgment against, but it also carries the idea that one is being disqualified from a prize. So that's kind of where the illustration of the racing kind of comes in of someone being disqualified, kind of in stock car, they, they're racing, they're thinking they're going to win, and then at the last second the black flag comes out and they've been disqualified, or uh, they find out that they, their car didn't meet the requirements and they're disqualified, um, kind of along those lines. But that brings up another big question. 
Can a Christian be disqualified of their salvation? Is that what Paul's talking about? Because that's a big game changer. Uh, the answer is no, that is not what Paul's talking about. And the reason why we think we know this is the Greek phrase is a present imperative mixed with a negative, which what that means is it's basically saying that this is a continued action. A better way of saying that is let no one continue to judge against you. Um, and basically, so this idea of that it's continuing to happen um, and that we get this idea that, you know, instead of like one final decision, but do not continue to let someone really kind of trick you or lure you. Um, some translations use the word beguile or kind of charm or uh, trick along those lines. And so I think a better idea of what Paul is talking about is do not let them trick you or lure you or charm you out of your heavenly rewards. And um, as we kind of will dig into dig into that, we'll, we'll look into why that is in a second. Um, the, the believer, uh, Paul, kind of, there's a couple verses that come to mind. Jesus talks about the heavenly rewards where he says, you know, to store up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. Uh, John continues and says, do not lose what you worked so hard for so that you may receive a full reward. And then Paul even continues this in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, do you know, not know that you run the race and run the race so that you may win the prize? And the Greek word prize is the same root word as brabuo. And it means the award that is given to an athlete who wins. Uh, but it's also the metaphor for our rewards in heaven. And so I think that that gives us a clearer picture of what Paul is talking about. That that's the idea that do not let anyone disqualify you or charm you out of your rewards in heaven. Um, so now that we've kind of clarified a little bit of that, we'll dig into the meat of the passage, um, if you can believe that. So um, Paul lays out a command, right? We just talked about it. Do not let anyone disqualify you. That is a command that Paul has given. He follows that up with four modifying clauses, which we'll kind of go one by one of what, what Paul is talking about. And these uh, will pop up on the screen. And so these are the four clauses related to the false teaching that Paul is addressing. The first one is insisting on asceticism in worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head. As I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, these clauses are made up of phrases that are not found in other parts of the Bible. And the reason for that is Paul is addressing this specific false teaching, and he's using claims that are made by the false teachers. So if you are not following along in uh, the ESV version, it's not that you're wrong, um, but your version is probably going to read a little bit differently, um, and that's simply because the different translations are trying to get at this idea um, that doesn't have really a set precedent to go on. So it's a little tricky to translate, um, but the meaning is still there. So the first one that we're going into is insisting on asceticism, in the worship of angels. Scholars um, agree that what it means is delighting in self-abasement or false humility. Um, as Christians, we are to strive for humility, meaning that we have proper understanding of who we are in relationship to Christ. But 
the delighting part is what kind of indicates that this is more of the look at how humble I am or I'm the most humble person in the world type of situation, um, if you've ever met any of those people. But also it indicates that they're, they're taking delight in an action. They're doing something. So we take that phrase mixed with the worship of angels, and that's where we get into this Jewish mysticism, uh, similar to what was found in Qumran. We found out when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found that they were fascinated with angels. In fact, they believed that they could have a higher level of worship by doing certain things to sensitize their flesh and by freeing of their mind. Um, And so that is where we get the term asceticism. That's why the ESV uses that term. Um, And so what is asceticism? Well, one scholar describes it as strict self-denial as a means for a higher spiritual experience. It's found in many religions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and, and parts of Christianity use it. Uh, a lot of times it is extreme fasting. Um, it has exposure to heat and cold, uh, whipping or flagellation, and even as extreme as self-mutilation. Um, when I was kind of studying about it, the thing that kept coming to my mind, if you've seen the movie The Da Vinci Code, is there's a character there named Silas, who is a monk, but he's also an assassin. And one of the ways that he worships God is by whipping himself while praying. Um, And so kind of seeing that uh, is kind of what comes to my mind. And actually, there's been reports that have come out in the recent years about Pope John Paul II uh, actually whipping himself regularly as part of his worship to God. And they use that, uh, the nuns who took care of him use that as... uh, reasons for why he should be considered a saint, um, among other things. But that is viewed as, look at how devout he is. He's willing to whip himself in his devotion uh, to God. And so that's some of the ways that that's kind of been played out. I think it's a slippery slope for Christians. Um, Some of you may be thinking to yourself um, about spiritual disciplines. And I know for myself, I've fasted before, so I've abstained from food. And I think that there, there are some big differences. Uh, I think really it gets down to the heart of the matter, and God really is concerned about your heart because out of that is, flows your actions. And um, I was not abstaining from food to sensitize my flesh or free my mind. I wasn't doing it um, for this higher worship experience. I was doing it to grow uh, in my relationship with Christ. And I think that there is a difference there. Um, as well as I think Christians can slide into this idea of it's a formula. If I do A, then God will do B, and then I will get C. Kind of similar to if I fast, God's going to move in a mighty way, and then I'll get C. Uh, and so kind of thinking of it as like a vending machine, right? If I do the little dance, I'm going to end up with my Mountain Dew at the end. Um, and that's manipulation. That's That's trying to manipulate God, and that's not how God works. That's not okay. And so I think that's a way that people can kind of slide into this. I also think besides the formula-based, if a Christian is practicing these, um, it shows a misguided understanding of grace and salvation. Uh, As the great Christian theologian Mark Twain said, heaven goes by favor and not by merit. If it went by merit, you, uh, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Um, 
And I think that that's his take on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, but by a gift of God. And kind of the idea is that we didn't deserve it, right? And so God provided it as a gift to us, and not by our own works. It's not because we whipped ourselves enough, or not because we did the dance enough, but it's because God loves us so much that he provided a way. And um, I think that that's one of the... (laughs) My iPad tuned out. My notes. Um, But I think that... um, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Anyway, so I think that God, we, we try this idea that, that we can really earn this, our, our salvation. We can earn it. And kind of saying that God died, similar to what Chad talked about last week, right? That Jesus died on the cross to free us from the bondage of sin, not to just get wrapped up in another form of bondage. And so John 8:36 says, "For if the Son has set you free, be free indeed." Right? And we celebrate that liberation. We should celebrate that freedom, and especially coming up on this week of Fourth of July. Right? That's something that we should celebrate. The freedoms that we have as an American, we have even more freedoms in Christ, and celebrating that. Um, and so, then we have this issue of worshiping the angels, and, and what does that mean? And so we have these. Um, false teachers who believe that if you do these certain practices, if you do these things, you can sensitize your flesh, and by doing so, you can achieve a higher level of worship. And in doing so, you can worship as the angels did. And so they got fascinated with angels and and kind of looking at what did they do. And in doing so, they took their eyes off of God and focused on on angels. And in doing so, they worshiped angels. And scripture is very clear that we are not to worship anything other than God. We are not to worship the creation. We are only to worship the creator. And even in John, uh, in Revelation, he's reminded twice in 19, in chapter 19 and chapter 20, or 22, that he fell at the foot of an angel. And the angel said, what are you doing? Stand up. I'm a fellow servant. Do not worship me, but worship God. And, and so these angels even knew they do not, you do not worship an angel of the Lord. They are fellow servants. There's only one person who we are to worship, and we are to worship God and God alone. So as we can see how this first clause leads into the second one, so they have this practice that they would do, that where they would whip themselves or whatever they would do to get ready for this higher worship experience. And so what's the natural thing? They'd want to tell people about it, right? And so we have this clause going on in detail about visions. And... Kind of the Greek uh, in this is kind of this detailed investigation, right? They want to tell everybody about it. They want to, you know, look at, you know, I experienced this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Look at how spiritual I am, right? Have you done any of that? No. Have you fasted for 72 hours? No, I have. And then not only that, I got to do, you know, I got to see this, or I got to experience this, or I felt this. And so... It very much, they were going on in details about what this is happening, what was going on. This is the whole reason why we are even talking about this passage today. Because if they didn't go on detail, details about it, then Paul was probably like, ah, just let the crazies be crazy. Um, but because they were part of the body and they were telling people and trying to get them to follow suit, basically saying, 
that if you do this, you can experience this higher level of worship, just like us. And so the false teaching, and they were trying to pull people with them to worship and make that the normal part of their uh, worship experience. And so that leads into our third, um, because they had this higher level of worship. They told everybody about it. And so they were puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The, t- the, the term puffed up is unique to Paul. It's only found in one other book in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians. Uh, and what it means is inflated with pride. And so we can see how them going through this process, talking about it, thinking, hey, you should do this and you should follow me, how that would inflate them with pride, right? They think that they are superior to others. They think that they have this special experience, this special knowledge, that they are better, and even kind of get the idea that they were trying to position themselves to overtake leaders that uh, Christ had in position in the church there, that they were trying to um, possibly even benefit from fortune off of this. And so um, Paul continues that with the term or the phrase, without reason, uh, clearly making known that they had no reason to be inflated with pride. The worship experiences that they had were fake, were false. They had nothing to validate them. Um, and I think of a way to an example for this that made sense was, so we have Michael Jordan, who is a six-time NBA champion. Uh, he has won multiple and just a, a huge plethora of awards. He was named the second most... Uh, greatest athlete of the 20th century. Um, only to Babe Ruth was first. And then you have LeVar Ball. Um, some people already know where this is maybe going, but some of you don't. LeVar Ball made the comment that in his heyday, he could have beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. LeVar Ball played one season at Washington State where he averaged 2.2 points per game. In 1987, the same season that Michael Jordan averaged 35 points playing for the Chicago Bulls. Um, and I think that this is an idea of someone who's inflated with pride, which I'm not saying Michael Jordan is or is not, but his skills and his uh, accolades and stuff would could at least boast that, that he might be prideful over those. And then you have LeVar Ball, who was trying to establish his brand and get his name out there, comes in and basically is inflated with pride without reason, Right that comparing himself to Michael Jordan as far as a basketball player, there is no comparison. It's not even close. And that's kind of similar to the false teachers, right, where you have Jesus and what Jesus has done, and then you have these false teachers coming in and being like, oh, we have a better experience. We have a higher level of worship than than worshiping Christ. And so kind of that same idea of just it's ridiculous and um, and so that's kind of that idea of inflated with pride without reason. And then lastly, it has the, the sensuous mind, which the Greek is fleshly, um, which indicates the worldly desire, the sin nature. And so you could see how because of that worldly desire and sin nature, that would feed to puffing them up, um, making them feel more superior. But also a bigger thing that I think for Paul is this idea of it being unaided by the Holy Spirit. And that was a big deal because that meant that, and that, that kind of leads us to our fourth clause in a second, but that they were not being guided by the Holy Spirit. So they're trying to teach these people how to worship, 
but they are not connected to the head, which is the fourth clause, not, not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Um, these false teachers, they wanted the people to deepen and develop their spiritual lives. Excuse me. That's not a bad thing. Actually, at Ridgewood, we have the same desire. We want you to deepen and develop your relationship with Christ. But that is the difference. We want it based on Christ and holding fast to the head. Because if you do not hold fast to the head, Paul's indication is that the body would be severed from the head, the body representing the believers. And so if you follow this false teaching, if you follow this idea of the aesthetic, uh, at the asceticism in the higher worship or following worship experiences that are higher than worshiping Christ, it will lead to you being severed from Christ. And John 15 indicates very well what happens to those things that are severed from the head. And so in John 15, it talks about the branches in the vine, or as I like to think of, a nice honeycrisp apple tree. And that I am a branch of a honeycrisp apple tree, which produces honeycrisp apples because those are my favorite apples and they're Minnesota State apple. Um, and so John 15 tells us that if the branch is removed from the tree or the vine, that it is to be thrown out and dried up. It doesn't go on thriving. It doesn't go on getting better or start its own tree. It's be, to be thrown out and dried up. And we've seen this. If you've ever uh, broken off a branch from a, a tree and you look at it, it's green. It's flexible. It doesn't burn very well right away. But if you let it sit for a while, it turns brown and it gets fragile. And you can break it with your hands or over a knee and you can have great bonfires, which I've had over the summer already, with, with branches just like that. It doesn't get better. It doesn't have a heightened level to it. It, it actually dies. And so um, this is kind of what Paul is talking about, that anything that is separate from Jesus doesn't go off and get better or have a heightened level. It actually severs it from the power source. And a lot of times, people who are claiming to have these experiences or this heightened level of worship that are separate from Christ, they're feeding on your emotions and they're feeding on how it makes you feel. And I want to clarify something. I've had my mountaintop experiences. I've had times where I've been emotional with Christ. And I've even going on retreats with students, those are times that really feed my soul and, and really worshiping with them. Those are times that uh, feeds me. And so, but it's based on Christ. And so there's the difference. I'm a, I'm a sucker for anything TV or movie that's kind of a tearjerker. I've seen almost every episode of Undercover Boss, right? And I'm in the corner, one like tearing up and blaming it on allergies or dust particles and, you know, like, oh, you didn't clean well enough or something or we got to clean or, you know, trying to maintain my manlyhood. But those experiences, you know, seem powerful and, you know, they feed you maybe for a day. They make you feel good or maybe for a week, whatever it might be. But they don't have any transforming power. They don't have any sanctifying power. They're not connected to the source that does that. And to bring it back to where we started, the let no one disqualify you, Paul is talking about that the spiritual growth is grown only out of a personal relationship with Christ. And that is where our growth happens. 
But going back to that first point of let no one disqualify you or let no one um, trick you out of your rewards, your heavenly rewards, that if you're thinking that you're going to go on and have these heightened levels of, it, of experience or worship something that's separate from Christ, that is what Paul is addressing. That is what will lead to the disqualification of those heavenly rewards. There is nothing that is separate from Christ. Those things are fake. They're false. Those are what lead to the puffed up without reason. And so there's people that claim to have this you know, feeling of this energy or going out and it really feeds them by being out in nature, which is fine. And you can worship God's creation if you understand that that was created through Christ and bringing it back through Christ. But if you think that you just get fed into this natural energy of the world, that's separating yourself from Christ, right? And those are the things that will lead to the disqualification of the heavenly rewards. Um, And so kind of going back to this, the true spiritual growth is grown out of only a personal relationship with Christ. I've talked about this a couple times. What does a personal relationship with Christ mean? It means that you that you know him? No, it means that you actually interact with him. I know Chris Pratt. I know of Chris Pratt. I don't have a personal relationship with him. It would be amazing if I did, right? I know by research that he was born in Virginia, Minnesota, which is awesome. We claim that, right? He's born in Minnesota. He was there for three years, but that doesn't count. He was born here. So he's Minnesota, right? I've seen the movies that he's been in. I've seen the TV shows that he's been in. But that doesn't mean that I have a personal relationship with Christ. In the same way, you can be raised in the church, have heard about Jesus your entire life, and you can know all the Bible trivia. You can know where he was born. You can know what he did as a job. You could see all the movies that have ever been made about Jesus You could even read the Bible and know and read the entire Bible and still not have a personal relationship with Christ. To have a personal relationship with Christ means that you interact with Christ. means that you spend time with him. You talk with him. And that is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that that happens is by giving your life to Christ and surrendering it. And the good news is, As I shared in Ephesians 2, it's already been done. It's a gift. God has done the work. Jesus went to the cross for you to pay that. And that's the good news. And so if there's someone here or someone watching online that hasn't given their life to Christ, that doesn't have a personal relationship with Christ, I would encourage you to look into that, to talk about that, to pray about that, and to even offer coming and talking with one of us or myself after the service of what that means. It's not tricky. It's a gift. Scripture tells us that if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, which is Lord and Savior, and you believe in your heart, there's the heart piece again, because that's an important thing. God cares about your heart. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died and was raised again, then you will be saved. That's it. It's not full of these hoops that you have to jump through that Chad was talking about, the legalism that people try to put on. It's not you have to do these crazy practices or whip yourself. No, there's freedom in Christ of having that personal relationship with Christ. And then there may be some of you here today that simply have that relationship, but you feel far from God. 
You feel distant. And maybe it's because you haven't been spending time with God. Or maybe it's because you've started following into some of this new age stuff that talks about being connected to each other and and being connected to the universe and this power that's coming in. And maybe it's some of that. And you're being severed from the body, from the head. And the good news is that God is waiting to just embrace you. Of just crying out to him and just simply saying, I'm here. And God, I need you. I want to be connected to you. I want to be like the vine connected to the... or the branch connected to the vine. I want your power flowing through me. I want to feel connected to you. And God will answer that prayer. And maybe there's some of you that you gave your life to Christ or you're just kind of running the other way, the prodigal son. And what I want to say to that is simply that God is still waiting for you. And he's eagerly waiting for you to turn to him so that he can embrace you. And similarly, he wants to be connected. He wants to be reconciled. And he loves you. And he wants to just run to you if you are willing. And then there may be some here that are saying, I've never been more connected to God. And that I want to praise God for. That is an amazing thing. And that is a huge blessing. And I want to encourage you to continue to strive to keep that the way it is. And I also ask you to pray about how you can be an encouragement and how you can continue to share that faith with others. And so in a moment, we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then um, the people who are helping with communion can, can come on down. Um, so if you'll pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be connected to you as our head, Lord, and that we will look to you. And that out of that comes all of the nourishment and all, the, all of the spiritual blessings that we need that we can run the race without being disqualified, that we can continue to fix our eyes on you, knowing that you are our Lord and our Savior. And Lord, I pray for any people who need to just reach out to you, whether it's for a first time or whether it's just because they feel distant and they feel worried and burdened. Lord, I pray that they will be able to um, just cry out to you today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we transition to um, the Lord's Supper, in a second, you'll get an opportunity to come and take of the bread and the, and the grape juice. Um, I would encourage you to reflect on where you are in your relationship uh, with God, where your personal relationship is. You know, where is your focus? Is it on Jesus as the head, or is it kind of somewhere else? And so there's going to be music playing and an opportunity. For me, I'm kind of a, a hands-on type person, and so just holding the bread and the juice helps me to just really focus on um, praying those things of that this is his body broken for me, this is his blood shed for me. Um, and so we'll get, um, just encourage you to do that. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians uh, 23, 11, 23, which says, On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is my cup. The the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we do this, that is what we do. We're proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Um, and so it's an important part of us doing this together. So we'll come as individuals and then we will wait and we'll take it together as a body, declaring our proclamation of who he is as the head and the Lord and the Savior. So please come.